0: Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. On today's podcast, I will be speaking with a colleague of mine, Nisha McKenzie. Nisha is the owner and founder of the Women's Health Collective in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Michigan is my home state, and I, for a while, lived on the west side of the state, where it can tend to be a bit more conservative. So when I first learned that Nisha was creating a collective that caters to all women, I was so grateful for her insight to create such a place. Nisha is a certified physician assistant, menopause practitioner, sexuality counselor, and an ISWISH fellow. Her center is women-owned and operated and focuses on the multiple areas women need health care for, from gynecological, breast examinations, STI testing, fertility care, and more. Nisha also spends her time teaching at a number of collegiate institutions, such as Grand Valley State University, Western Michigan University, and University of Michigan's Sexuality Health Certificate Program. I know firsthand that she is one fantastic educator, and she was recognized as one of West Michigan's most influential women. Basically, she's badass in every way. So Nisha, I am so grateful that you are taking time to be on our show today.
1: Hi, Kara. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you're going to take time to talk with me.
0: Well, I'm just always in awe of you, to be quite honest with you. I see all the stuff that you are managing, and I'm like, how in the world
1: (laughs) are you doing all things? (laughs) It's all smoke and mirrors. (laughs) That's the beauty of social media, right? We look at everybody and we go, oh, why am I not doing that? So same here. I do it all the time.
0: Well, I just think one, I mean, I've heard you speak and I've also, I have just, you know, seen your presence at all of our conferences and stuff. And I just feel like you are a wealth, like wealth of information that, you have. And I just um, love the way that you're so personable with people and you make people feel extraordinarily comfortable and you're able to just meet them where they're at and just, you know, provide them with the education they need. I just think it's great for one. Thank you.
1: (laughs) I tell you, if I could, you know, if I could leave this world with someone just saying that, Mm. that I made them feel comfortable or heard or, um, like they can, they can express themselves. Like they they be themselves, that's, that's all I would want. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you've done it. So, I mean, I can tell thank just you. by the way people are around you. So thank you. Yeah. What made you want to get into the field of medicine as a physician assistant?
1: Well, so when I was real young, um, it's kind of the, the story, right? Something happens when you're young and then you go, Oh, I think I want to get into medicine because I want to fix that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it my great grandmother lived with us when I was, um, let's see shortly before I got into middle school. So yeah, cause she passed away when I was in seventh grade and she had lived with us for four years and it was just devastating to me. And she had congestive heart failure, emphysema. She had smoked for a bajillion years. And, um, so lots of lung problems and heart problems. And I remember just sobbing and going, "Why can't the doctors fix her?" Oh. <laughs> of course, in my seventh grade, had so I was actually just going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon at that point, point. Hmm. Um, and you know, I went to the other end of the body and the end of things here. But um, but yeah, at that point, I thought I need to I need to get into medicine. I need to figure out how bodies work, see if I can help in any way, and um, so then in seventh grade, I decided I wanted to do that. But then I also had this battle of, which is still the age-old battle of, Mm -hmm. I really just want to be a mom. I want to have Uh, kids and I want to raise children and help them be good, helpful beings in this world. And so then I was trying to decide back and forth, do I go into medicine? Do I just um, go into PA school instead of medical school? So I kind of went the route that I could do both the whole way. And then of course, you know, other things happen. I think there's always things as you can look back and go, what prompted me to do this? So I didn't know in the moment, but my parents divorced when I was a teenager. And as all many divorces are, I should say, um, things got a little ugly and Mm. there were five children in my family. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be in a position where I have children and I'm left with nothing and can't provide for them and can't. And my mom got married at age 19. She didn't have any other training in anything. And so to provide for the five of us was impossible for her. Hmm. Yeah, and I remember thinking that too, like, okay, how do I balance all of this? My will to be a mom, my desire to want to help people. And then how do I balance between wanting to do all of that and have, I don't know, have a job and, and have have a be a parent, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so then... I hadn't even heard of PAs until I got into undergrad. And I think it was my counselor in undergrad that was talking to me about it. And I thought, well, that seems like a more reasonable choice than medical school, especially since it was going to be my plan B. It was just going to be, you know, in case I got married and um, my partner either left me or passed away or things that you wouldn't predict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I'll just get this Plan B, and I thought medical school seems like a big Plan B. So PA school seemed like a reasonable choice, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then I just loved it, and I couldn't. I was like, I got to I got to do this and that. I can mm-hmm. do both, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so then I just decided to go to PA school, and and I have never ever looked back. When I first started practicing 20 years ago, you know, I'd come in and these patient rooms and they'd look at me and think, oh honey, when are you going to finish school? And, and you know, <sighs> finish being a doctor. And, and I get far less of that now, maybe because I'm old, but also um, I think because people have heard of PAs a little bit more than they had 20 yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never, even then, never questioned I loved what I did. I loved what I had the capacity to do. I didn't need a capacity to do anything more at that point. I thought I never need to own my own practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really liked being in rooms with patients and mm-hmm. I could do all of that as a PA and I could have my own patient load um, that I could see on my own and diagnose and treat. And it was very fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And when I first started working, I worked two days. Of, well, I worked full time until we had children. And then I worked two days a week and that was just a perfect, mm. perfect balance, perfect fit for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that always seems when I was a mom, I was mostly a stay-at-home mom, but then I would also have some part-time jobs here and there, right? And mm-hmm. mine was mostly in youth ministry or in foster care, but it was just that sweet spot. <laughs> where was, yeah. You could still feel, you know, some people have the gift of being able to s- stay home for you know, long amounts of time and that is where they thrive. Yeah. Um, But I always found myself getting lost a bit, you know, Mm in my identity and things like that. And so.
1: Yeah, I think I would have. I I used to always delusionally, I think, tell myself I could 100% be a full stay-at-home mom or I could 100% be full-time working PA. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I found this balance, but I'm sure I couldn't have. I would have gone crazy mm-hmm. doing one or the other completely. I think I was able to have the privilege privilege to feel that because I was doing both. Yeah. That's um, great. And so, yeah, the two days a week worked wonderfully. It allowed me to have real human talk and not just babble.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it allowed me to be peed on and puked on by adults and not just babies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was... Glorious. I almost wanted to be like. So, what's the variance and the amount that you experience? <laughs> yep, hilarious. just chronological years. That's all. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, what when you were a PA, what did you notice about women's healthcare once you were, you know, more intimately in the field?
1: You know, so I started my practice uh, for the first nine years, I was in family practice. Mm -hmm. And I worked with two uh, male providers who were wonderful. They were lovely. I learned so much from both of them. One was a PA, one was a physician. And I learned a lot from both of them. But neither of them really wanted anything to do with women's health. And so it was the two of them and myself in this practice at that point. And so I did all the Annual exams, pap smears, you know, abnormal bleeding, birth control, that kind of stuff in the family practice. And even just that, I went, gosh, these are these two guys, they're really good providers and they don't want anything. To, they're so uncomfortable mm-hmm. with treating women. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it sadly hit me. It didn't hit me for a number of years. Um, in it that I finally looked back and went, wait a minute! If they're not wanting to see women, and I know they're good providers, mm. how often do these women go into places? And I mean, people are smart; they can feel when they're being heard and when they're being listened to, and when they're being cared for, where they're being brushed off. Yeah, I thought, how often do these women walk into other places and men just aren't comfortable with them? And this is a blanket statement; not it's not all men, right, that are uncomfortable with treating women. But mm-hmm. I just realized that. As I looked back further, we didn't get a lot of good detail into what makes a woman healthy versus what makes a man healthy in medicine. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting.
1: It is truly we learn the default, which is male health in general, let alone male sexual health. Mm -hmm. But you know, cardiac disease, when we think of someone having a heart attack, right? We think of them grabbing their chest. That's a that's a male symptom, a male function that happens generally right women tend to have different symptoms and i just started noticing more and more over the years this gender bias within medicine and it's so let's see i don't know if quiet's the right word it's so not spoken about that i i i missed it for a number of years right um, and then i just started realizing oh these women have questions and they have concerns and they present differently and i i didn't know why yeah. And, and then I realized, well, it's because they're women. It wasn't another reason, right? It's not because they're having a weird kind of heart attack. They're just having yes. their kind of heart attack. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's so much gender bias within medicine that's still not
0: acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think as a, as a woman and having experienced, I think, the element of going into these practices where there are a lot of men, I've often felt disregarded or not listened Mm -hmm. to, right? And I think women have, and I want to say a more intuitive sense of their bodies and their functioning Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we are more interactive with them in the sense of, I believe, when we have our menstrual cycles and different things Mm -hmm. like that, those who have them. And it's because, you know, we started that at a young age and we had to be more in tuned with what our body was telling us. Right, And so I have found... Just talking with my girlfriends, uh, the amount of times where we have come to doctors to say we feel like this is an issue and just not being heard and then having our girlfriends then say, keep at it, you know, (laughs) keep talking. And then we process with each other to be like, well, maybe it could be this. And then it's like we do our own research to then help Mm -hmm. our friends and then to advocate and say, well, try over here or try Mm -hmm. this person. And I got to the point where I have then decided to mostly just see female physicians because Mm -hmm. it is in those spaces where I feel more cared for and where I feel like my whole essence and my whole body is being thought of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And think of all the time in seconds, right? That it just took you to even explain that process Mm-hmm. And then the women who are living it, and it takes years to live it, right? To, yeah. to go through and to figure out how to advocate for yourself and that you can advocate for yourself mm-hmm. and even that you have to. Right. That's a real unfortunate part. Right. right. I mean, medicine is supposed to be a, I mean, it's it's frankly, it's a customer service industry. Right. Mm-hmm. We're here to help the people and somehow it's flipped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... And um, I don't know. I just don't think people are heard in general.
0: Yeah. I even remember the first time I got a gynecological examination from a woman. <laughs> I, just, mm-hmm. I just remember I am going in. She told me what she was going to do. She mm-hmm. you know, expressed things like, I'm going to touch you here. This is what you might feel, you know, explained it. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, okay. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, I'm done. And I'm like, yeah. I go what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're done. And she's like, "Do I need to hang out any longer?" And I was <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm like, that was like the fastest experience. <sighs> ever. And it was just yes. And I was like, oh well, I've never, you know. I mean, I don't want to say this, you know. No offense to male providers, but it it is a difference when you have a there is. provider who just boom, 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 like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in yeah. a gentle way, and you're like, right. oh. All right. There it goes. We've all been there. We've
1: been in those stirrups. We don't need to spend any time there more so than absolutely necessary. We don't need anything larger in there than absolutely necessary. We can use those small speculums. We can warn people. We can warm things. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It makes a big difference. And I hear that a lot from women too, that switch, you know, from Mm -hmm. previously a male provider and they'll see me and they're like, wait, 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 what? (laughs) That's it? Are you sure you got it? You don't need to get back in there and make sure you got everything. No, we're good.
0: <laughs> it is like a whole new world, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then from there, knowing the disparity, is uh, what else then pushed you to become a sexual health counselor and specialize?
1: Oh, so, you know, in the nine years that I was in family practice, Again, over time, I'm slow. It takes me a while to figure things out, but over time, Mm -hmm. maybe seven or eight years in, I realized all these women that I was doing their pap smears on and just doing their general care, they would say things like, you know, I'd go to do their pap smear and they'd say, okay, just clean the cobwebs out while you're down there. And then they'd get this little chuckle oh. and then it's real awkward. And then I'm nervous and I'm like, am I supposed to laugh because you're laughing? But I don't mm. think that's very funny because I think that's a cry for help. But I also don't have the answers to that mm. or to tell you, you know, how to make that better. And oh. so maybe I can just say it was just mostly because I hate awkwardness,
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. but ultimately I started to just be really uncomfortable with the fact that these women had questions and I didn't have answers Mm -hmm. and I was starting to lose sleep over some women that I would send home. And I would, and I would say to myself, I know I didn't give her the care she needed because I didn't know how to. Yeah. And, and I don't like having, not having answers. Um, That's not fun for me, Mm -hmm. but also I could tell they were struggling and I could tell that they also didn't know that they had the right to ask, they'd feel moderately comfortable enough to make a little bit of a joke, mm. kind of quote unquote joke about it. But um, but that was it. And I thought, oh my gosh, women are struggling. Mm. And there's nowhere for them to go. And if they can't go to another female provider who is the person that they put their legs in stirrups for at least once a year, there's nothing more, no more intimate medical interaction, right? That you're, yeah. you're vulnerable, you know, that you're just putting your legs there and going, okay. I'm trusting you. If that's the person that still can't answer those intimate, vulnerable questions, then who else is going to? Hmm. So I started just looking into it and going, well, I had no idea what was out there. But I thought someone's got to know something about, about sex. Someone's got to know something about relationships. I mean, there somewhere. is that Dr.
0: Ruth out there. So, so right, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> right. So I just started Googling and trying to figure out, you know, where can medical providers learn more about this? Because gosh, we just get nothing in school mm-hmm. about that. And found a couple different organizations, learned a little bit more about hormones, and then found ISWISH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And I think my jaw was on the ground the entire weekend from my first conference hmm. that I went there. And I just thought, where has this information been for the last decade? Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I think that that's. I didn't necessarily think I wanted to get into sex counseling. I didn't know that that was even a thing. Mm -hmm. I just knew I wanted more information from a medical perspective so I could help relay that to patients who were struggling with their relationships or with pain or with their sexuality. Um, And I just started looking for places to find it. And then I decided, well, in order to do this, Family practice is just hard to do it because you have such a broad scope of things that you have to be able to treat and be um, be aware of that to, to really focus in, to hone in on one topic is, is just not possible in family practice. So I started looking for a women's health or a gynecology practice that I could join. And then I found one of those. I found a private gynecologist in the area and I <laughs> went in and I don't. I've always been really introverted and shy. I don't know why I did this, Kara, but I went into him and I just said, hey, it looks like you need a good PA.
0: Oh my gosh. First of all, I can't believe you just Uh, said you're introverted and shy.
1: I know. (laughs) People say that to me all the time and I am. It's so out of the box for me to talk and to even just to do this. I mean, my mouth is like a cotton ball right now. My pits are soaked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's how I've been on every
0: workshop. That I think
1: <laughs> every time I teach, I feel the same way. Yeah. Um, I am like, I'm in my jam. If I'm one-on-one in a room with a patient, just talking, yeah. that's, yeah. that's where I'm comfortable. But that's when I also realized more needs to change than this, because I'm just going to keep chasing my tail, chasing their tails, right? Like just constantly mm-hmm. going around in circles, trying to figure out how to help these women feel better when maybe I can stop it at the past somehow by educating more or teaching other providers, mm-hmm. um, how to, how they can practice differently or counsel differently. Um, so anyways, I'm sorry I got off track there, but,
0: no. um, I, I just, yeah, so
1: I just went in and told him he needs a good PA and he was like, are you looking for a job? And then, <laughs> and then I about <laughs> crafted my pants and I went, Oh, I didn't think that would work. <laughs> <laughs> And so from that moment, it took me about 10 months. Um, he was ready. He said, sure, let's do it. Wow. And he was a very busy solo physician and had never had a PA before, but he was ready for the help. And um, I realized I spoke too soon and I wasn't sure I was ready. Yeah. And I loved my patients. I loved family practice. I loved being able to see the infant, the newborn, all the way to the great grandma. Mm-hmm. Um, I love knowing the whole families. And I then just over that time, really thought about it and thought, you know, this is where I feel like I need to be. Mm-hmm. So I moved, made the move over, but I told this new physician, said, if I come over here, this is why I want to do it. I want to focus on sexual health. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he actually wanted me to start a spa for him because I had kind of worked on that a little bit with my family practice and started that type of thing. And, and I said, no, no, I want nothing to do with that. <laughs> and I just wanted to work and focus just on female sexual health. And I was like, okay.
0: Wow, that's so awesome. we went with it. That's
1: really cool. And yeah, once I went over there, that was in 2011. And then I started going to some more conferences and learning more and getting certifications and even as I got certification. So we both went to the university of Michigan sexual health program. Mm -hmm. And when I went through that, even I still didn't think I wanted to be a sex counselor. Hmm. I just wanted to go get more. I wasn't, wasn't planning on becoming a sex certified. I wasn't planning on doing anything with it. At that point, I still really just wanted more information so that I could go into a room with a patient and really be more helpful. I just still felt like I wasn't helpful enough. Yeah. And I think throughout that process. And as I saw, what other people were doing. And there's so many inspiring people in this work.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: And I saw what people were doing and what they were planning. You know, even then that was in 2014 that I went through that program. And that wasn't that long ago, but gosh, the world has changed so much since then. And it's definitely more thought about that just sexual medicine in general is a little more accepted than it was then. But yeah, Yeah. then I just wanted to still be one-on-one with people.
0: That's awesome. I feel like we <clears throat> share a little parallel with within your story. As you were saying, I just didn't have answers. And for me, I, I worked with youth and that's one of the reasons why I went into um, sexual health because of the many questions the youth were telling me or asking me and telling me about their sexual experiences or wonderings. And that was I too was like, mm-hmm. I don't have the answers to give you. And I don't think I even know that much about my own body. Right. <laughs> you know? So let me go and study. But I think what's important for people to hear too, as you touched upon is how little uh, teaching experience medical professionals have around sex. Yeah. Because when I heard that at the program, the amount of hours that you do get, and how we surpassed those, right? Just through our own program. I was, I was always shocked by that.
1: Yeah. It's really heartbreaking how few hours that anyone in medical school, PA school, NP school, even PT therapists, I've learned, you know, how, how little training they get in the, in the realm of sexuality. When that Every human being who was born is a sexual being. Mm-hmm. They all use it in different ways, right? It means something different to different people. Um, some choose not to use it, right? But there's still, there's a sexual component of what they, uh, how they exist. And to not touch on that when we teach people about human bodies is just such a disservice.
0: I think, I mean, I always say to parents and to, and you know, when I go into schools and I teach kids and different things, I say, you know, it's fascinating that even with puberty, when I teach fifth graders, right. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, we talk about, I make them sing head, shoulders, knees, and toes. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then I say, why did we forget the middle part? mm-hmm and I <laughs> that's
1: and funny I do the same thing do you really <laughs> I do not to kids but oh to even God. adults or when I teach in yeah. the PA schools or the residents I and I got this from Heather Alberta another sex educator who went through the program at U of M and she says you know until we can get to the point where we go head shoulders knees clearest toes right yes. like until we can just like roll with that yes. and that's part of the song we're not going to get to where we need to be. We need yes. to start incorporating that as a normal body part because yes. it is a normal body part.
0: It is. Yes. And so it's fascinating to me, too, when you you know, I had surgery last fall, and one of the nurses or uh, came into the room and he had asked me what I do for a living, and I said, "I'm a sexual health educator." And he goes, "Oh, oh. <laughs> like what's that mean? you know? And I, <laughs> Did he pull up a chair? <laughs> I said, Well, I teach people about, you know, their bodies and the functioning of them and how they function during sex and we talk about relationships and we talk about emotions and things like that. And he's like, Oh, oh. And I was like, Is this making you comfortable? <laughs> like he really didn't know what to say. And he turned he just, bright red. And uh-huh. I was like, I'm like, I didn't know this would be a problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: You know, I found when I, when I fly now, or if I'm out anywhere, like I'm out at a bar or anything and people ask what I do, I usually, depending on how social maybe that I'm feeling, Mm -hmm. I'll usually say I'm an accountant or (laughs) I'm in business. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's the, one of the most, It's the only time I feel really comfortable lying (laughs) in life because if I do say I'm in sexual medicine or I'm in, in sexual medicine within women's health, Mm. oh my word, they literally on a plane, they'll turn full face, fully facing me like, oh my gosh, can I ask you some questions? And I mean, oftentimes I really don't mind it. I love answering those, but sometimes I've got lectures to write or I've got maybe some sleep to catch up on. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And so if I don't, if I'm not in the mood for it, I'll just say, yeah, I'm in accounting. Oh, okay. And then the end story's done. <laughs> Conversation's <laughs> done. That's Good to meet <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
0: I absolutely love that. Um, what oh. are some, so you with your center then you know now you move to this place where you've created your own center what are some of the main concerns that you continuously hear from women
1: so my center is a we're, I'm trained now in gynecology as a PA so mm-hmm. I've worked with OBGYNs and so gynecology is my main focus so I namely see um people who either identify as women, people with uh, biologically female body parts, Mm -hmm. um, cervixes, uteruses, vaginas, vulvas, all of that. So I would say, I mean, I see a fair amount of gynecology still, Mm -hmm. but as far as the sexual health part goes, the vast majority are two things, I think, low libido and sexual pain.
0: Mm. Okay,
1: Those are probably the majority of what I see um,
0: all day, every day. And so what, how can you speak to that? Like for people who might be listening of what are some of the, you know, one of the things we educate also is like around normalcy, like, right. People say what's normal. And we also educate, I think around sexual activity, like what is normal for you and what feels good for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, what are some of the things that talk about that? Yeah.
1: Well, one of the things I usually tell them is normal is one of my least favorite words. Mm. We just need to throw that right out um, because it's, you know, it's what's what is you, like you said, what's yours, what's your normal? Mm-hmm. Maybe not throw it out, just redefine it, reframe it. Yeah. Um, so if we reframe the normal and say, okay, not what's normal that you hear in Hollywood or pop culture, because that becomes our normal because if we're so inundated with it. Yeah. Um, and then they also t- try to explain to people, you know, where we do see normal dips in. in in libido or in motivation Mm -hmm. to want to have sexual encounters Mm -hmm. hormonal dips Mm -hmm. but then we also talk about validating some of the times a lot of these women will come in postpartum and they're breastfeeding and maybe they have one or two more toddlers at home or maybe they don't but you know what the hormones are doing at that point and why even evolutionarily why our bodies don't want to have sex right then Mm -hmm. we need to heal we need to we need to um, nurture this child. We're not supposed to be wanting to have a ton of sexy time. That's okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. And so, so sometimes just validating and normalizing what is happening at times of life, global pandemics, for example, we're not having a lot of sex during this time because stress is high.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's not a time when people have a lot of sex. That's, that's your nervous system going fight or flight and stress is high. I'm being chased by a bear, I'm being chased by a global pandemic. It's not time to stop and have sex, <laughs> right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, sometimes it does just take some validation of what they're going through in their in their life. But many of them are, you know, still disturbed enough by it that they want to see what they can do to try to improve what's mm-hmm. happening for them. <laughs> and then as far as sexual pain goes, I would say that one is even it's it's especially heartbreaking for me because many of the people that come see me have been through numerous other providers that have told them, you know, drink a glass of wine. It won't hurt so much. Um, You just got to breathe. You just got to get through it.
0: Um,
1: You're not doing it more often.
0: Yeah. I interviewed a pelvic floor physical therapist on my show and she said the same thing. She said that Mm -hmm. so many providers say just, just get a glass of wine. Yes. I'm like, I,
1: I mean, what is happening? <laughs> it's still consistent. I, in a week, I don't even know if I could tell you how many times I have patients tell me that previous providers have told them that.
0: Uh, it's it's just so it's, like, um, it's just disregard. So dismissive. Yeah. Yes, that's the word. But yeah, it's yeah. just not even seeing, like, clearly, I mean, like, they would be into if that was the cure. You know, they're intuitive (laughs) enough to be like, "Oh, I'll just grab a glass of wine. (laughs)
1: Things will be good." Plays into it. I think it perpetuates the the societal standard that (laughs) I'm going to sound like a real raging feminist here for a minute. I try sometimes not to, but sometimes I also don't try not to. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But that the female is just a fleshy receptacle, right? Um. All you got to do is dissociate. Just don't think about it. Don't feel so that someone else can have their pleasure. Oh, yes. And that just makes my blood boil. Yeah. Like I just kind of throw up in my mouth a few times over and over again when I hear those things. Yes. No, this Uh. is not how, this is perpetuating the problem. Why women, when they get to a certain point, wherever it is in their life, that they go, I'm done. I don't Mm want to have sex anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's because they've always carried the burden and then any any of the negativity about sexuality has always fallen to to women. Right? Yeah. Wear a certain thing so that other people's behavior doesn't yes. fix, uh you know show in a certain way and say certain things and act in certain ways so that you can control other people's behaviors if we have any control over other people's behavior.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and I but think, also make sorry, um, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say I think that's why so many um, you know, programs are popping up around Mm -hmm. and coaching around learning Mm -hmm. how to love our bodies and allowing us to self-explore. Because so often it has been that receptacle for others instead of being our source of pleasure and recognizing our own sense of eroticism that we hold within ourselves.
1: Right. And control over, over that has been taken from women Historically, forever. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now we have a little bit better, right? We have access to birth control so that we can say, okay, now I can actually enjoy and have pleasure and not have to worry. What am I going to be stuck with Mm -hmm. if that's not what I want at the moment? Right. If I'm not trying to procreate, how can I enjoy this? Mm -hmm. Um, So, as women now, we do have better control over what happens to our bodies as a sequela of sex, better access to and understanding what STIs can do to our bodies and how we can prevent them and also how we can treat them. And also what, what value they may or may not carry in our lives, right? Mm. Some of these are just infections and they have so much stigma
0: Mm.
1: because it has to do with sex. Yeah. I will tell you, giving... Historically for me in my career, over the past almost 20 years, giving someone a cancer diagnosis is easier as the medical provider than giving someone a herpes diagnosis. Oh. oh. Almost every time. Yeah. Their response is so much more, it's so much more devastating for people. It's, I do think over the past few years, that's been getting a little bit better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, that when we talk about STIs, people aren't as devastated about them, but there's so much stigma and there doesn't need to be.
0: Yeah. Especially, I mean, I, mean, I think people have to recognize too, just how prevalent they are as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many people have these things, have them treated and, and how many people are having sex? Yeah. The stigma is that people are saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be having sex. As if they're not having sex, right? <laughs> <I know. laughs> the people who are dictating this, by the way, have sex. It's true. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm hopeful that we can start or continue to try to decrease the stigma around STIs. All it means is you've had sex with one person who's probably had sex with one person. Yeah. And that's most of the world. Yeah. That's okay. That's yeah. okay. That means it, it means nothing to me. I think people also think, uh, you know, if I were to make a herpes diagnosis or a gonorrhea diagnosis or any of the STIs, they'll look at me with this sheer terror, like, please don't think less of me, um. and <laughs> and I'll, and they'll almost always go, I swear I only have one partner, and usually my response is, it's okay if you have two hundred partners, as long as those were consensual, as long as you both wanted to be there in that moment that's okay and from here let's figure out what you can do to protect yourself to protect your partners or to treat it if it happens again mm. so you don't have to panic you don't have to live in that fear and anxiety over judgment
0: oh i love that's how you t- talk to people because i think too so often i you know we don't give the power to people yeah. in my opinion to make the safer choices for them because of one Um, accessibility for some. And two, because we don't give them the tools, right? And then because we put so much stigma around these things, then people don't Mm -hmm. feel like they have the ability to have those conversations, um, to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, I think too, within um, those who identify as female, we are taught to uh, be small and remain oh, yeah. quiet and not to advocate for our own health. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many reasons, right. Why right. people can end up, you know, getting these infections. And it just makes me, I think that's one thing that just makes me so sad. And that yeah. as an educator, I know for myself, I'm teaching parents to to say, Or to say, like, you want to help really love your kids in terms of having for them to have the best relationships. One of those things is to teach them and show them health clinics, go with them, go to the places where they can access this care because that is loving them fully and wholly.
1: And you know, I think you also really, really hit the nail on the head a minute ago when you said power. Because yeah. so much of sexuality is power, right? Mm-hmm. And female bodies, if, if we can control that, we essentially in or- order for a patient to feel empowered, the medical provider who's sitting in there with them has to release that power, right? And give yeah. that power to them mm-hmm. in order for it to be a two-way street. Not that people can't go into an office and just take that power and say, here's what it is. But in order to get the medical provider to kind of play with that, right? Mm-hmm. And to interact within that, mm-hmm they feel like they have to give up their power. Yeah, That's really hard for people to do, especially medical providers who feel like, listen, I've gone through all this. I've been through the schooling. I've given this up. I've paid this much money. I've got these credentials. I'm in charge here. I know what I'm doing. You need to listen to me. Hmm. And one of the things I tell patients is I have a lot of sometimes probably useless knowledge, but a lot of knowledge that comes from textbooks and journals and research and data, but you know, your body Mm -hmm. and every single body is totally different. There's not an algorithm for anyone's body. So if your right ovary doesn't have something on it that I feel like is big enough to cause a problem and be hurting, but it's hurting, then it's hurting. Right, mm-hmm. I'm not here to tell you. No, it actually doesn't hurt.
0: Oh my gosh! And I think so
1: many people get dismissed that way, and by saying, "Yeah, um, you know, I've looked there, and that that isn't going to be causing your pain." So, sorry, you must not be in pain. Or I went in and I fixed your endometriosis, right? I fixed your endometriosis. I cauterized all that. I cleared all of that out of there. So you shouldn't be in pain anymore. Wash my hands of you. You're done. And this person is going oh my God, I'm still in pain, probably because I've got pelvic floor dysfunction that nobody's diagnosed yet. Um, I'm still in pain. My relationship's still suffering. I'm miserable. I feel like half a human because I can't do what I want to do in life. I can't function the way I want to. I can't pick up my kids and laugh and run and play with them because I'm so much pain. I'm not better yet, Mm -hmm. but you've done my surgery and washed your hands of me. So now where do I go? And that's what I think perpetuates people to start to think I must be crazy I must be broken mm. um, I must be a wimp I must be feeling too many things right whatever whatever the narrative narrative is that we tell ourselves after we leave an office and don't feel validated mm. um, I mean, all of those things because they don't get validated
0: no I mean everything you just said is like things I have felt <laughs> I like, yeah I'm like can I just clone you and have you <laughs> You don't want that. (laughs) No, but that, I mean, gosh, if so many more people could understand that, right? Like we don't get to tell people when they're not in pain, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and to, to practice empathy around that and to act more curious than saying, well, it can't be this. It can't, you know, it's definitely Mm -hmm. not that because I tested and this came up like this. Mm -hmm. It's like people, people, um, you know, like you said, they know their bodies and we have yeah. to be willing and uh, patient to listen to that, you know, mm-hmm. and explore with them all options, in my opinion, you know.
1: And I really do sound like I'm ragging on medical providers here, which I am in a way, because there's times where we just get stuck in these patterns of, of not hearing, right? Just going and dictating mm-hmm. and leaving a room. But also it's the systems.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's the
1: systems that create this, starting from schools, starting from you know medical schools or PA schools or NP schools um, that create, they don't even teach. They don't teach the sexual health. They don't teach how to counsel with patients. They don't talk about the importance of hearing your patient or validating what they're feeling or how much healing that even offers just in the validation. And then the systems that they get into when they graduate, Mm -hmm. The medical systems. These are just like treat them and street them kind of systems. They're run by people in business and in finance. They're not run by physicians or um, PAs or NPs. Mm -hmm. And so money is what drives them. Mm -hmm. And yes, they can incorporate... A DEI course, right? Everybody has to have the diversity, equity, and inclusion course, right? Now, like this is a big thing now. Mm -hmm. So, these big hospital systems around us, they're incorporating these things, but they're not still saying, like, this is the culture we're going to create here. Right. Right. They just say, let's go through these motions, make sure you get this course. You have to have this in order to graduate. You have to have this in order to get your certificate and recertify. But it's not a culture they're creating because they're saying, "Listen, you get this this long with patients. You have to have this many. This is your quota for how many of these procedures you have to do." And hmm. um, and it doesn't it doesn't cultivate an area of safety for patients. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, and I don't know how to fix that. You know, I I'm not saying I know how to do that better, how to make big hospital systems work, but um, how I do it is just
0: stay (laughs) out of the hospital system. Well, I was going to say, I'm like, you've created an Uh, environment, I feel like you've created an environment where you're able to, you know, foster all of those things that they say, okay, you know, like you just said, before you graduate, you have to have these things, but it seems like mm -hmm. you're putting it into practice, you're fostering that care and empathy, you're fostering a place where you are listening to them and allowing them to know (laughs) that. You care, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that you're willing to see them through and yeah, discover things with them in a way that yeah, you know, is tender and caring. And geez, don't we need more of that, right?
1: Yeah, I think we do. And I think there are times where people need to be able to just go emergently and get a procedure done and get a surgery done, and they don't necessarily need that that listening ear, right? Sure. They just mm-hmm. need to say, "Hey, I'm I'm having a heart attack right now. Fix it," right? Oh yeah. And so there's places for that. But I I also would say there's so many medical providers who are practicing in ways that they're not happy. Yeah. And that they, they went into it for the right reasons, right? They they try. Oh, sure. And they're just stuck in these yeah. systems that that don't allow for the type of care and the type of nurturing that they'd like to give to their patients and that's sad.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can imagine.
1: And like I said, I don't have a fix for that, but I'm just gonna stay in my corner and do my thing and <laughs> right. Keep trying to fix it from the from the side here.
0: So I'm gonna switch gears a bit because yeah. one of the things that keeps coming up in my life that you are an expert at is menopause. Right. Oh, yeah. So I uh work with families. And I have, uh, I talk with the kids and stuff. And then the parents ask me all these things. And then I have women go talk to me about menopause. (laughs) Gosh. So what are some of the things that we need to understand and know more about menopause and, you know, hormones and all the things?
1: Oh, geez. I know Hormons that's like so. Yeah, long how much conversation? Time do we
0: have? Yeah, in three minutes or less, <laughs> talk to us are... about this. Right. Okay, no. <laughs> hormones
1: are so important, and I do think that people discount how important hormones are, mm-hmm. and I think even women discount it until they start to recognize the shifts, mm-hmm. and they go, "Oh my gosh, this isn't me. This isn't how I am." And certainly, um, people who are born without those, uh, in a body that doesn't have those kinds of hormone shifts. They definitely don't understand and we can not expect them to right they don't feel that but when women experience those giant hormone shifts even just before each period right? yeah yeah um for some uh postpartum but certainly perimenopause so first of all menopause the average age of menopause is 51 and a half and the perimenopausal era so the time frame where you can start to experience changes in your periods metabolism mood swings hair skin nails um, all of those kinds of things can start to go kind of wonky that can last anywhere from two to 12 years. It can be, it can feel like an eternity. So you can certainly start that late thirties, early forties, where you're starting to experiencing, okay, my metabolism is changing. Um, my moods are changing. So a lot of times people will come in. First thing they'll usually come in and tell me is, Nish, what is going on with my belly? I am, it is growing, it's expanding, it's pooching in ways it has never done before. I'm doing all the same things. I exercise this many days a week. I am on a plant-based diet. What the heck? What gives? And one of the things I take them back to is, well, you're doing all the same things. So we need to change it up a little bit. Your metabolism changed and you, you know, we have to change if we want to change with that. And we try to work on some body positivity too, right? Um, Yeah if you're feeling good don't worry about the numbers on that scale that's just a number like if you're not feeling good if your stomach is like oh i don't like what you just put in me then let's change what we're putting in it and sometimes we respond to foods differently as we go through perimenopause so we have to change that up too and it takes some effort and some intention and that's hard um but yes yeah, so many estrogen has over 400 functions in our body I know, and so amazing. over 400 things start to change Mm-hmm. when we go through menopause and so that is hair skin nails sex drives libido um, vaginal dryness um and then of course like hot flashes night sweats and so I think helping around 35-ish I start to talk to people about the changes that they might start seeing in the near future and what you know what kinds of things they can do about it what kinds of foods might trigger some of those things to be worse uh, what kinds of activity levels might be more helpful for them to get that might be um, calming for some of the things that are happening. Um, see, where else was I going with that? I lost it. Uh, you know, we have our moments. It's it's the mental fog also that comes right. along with these <laughs> time frames. <laughs> happens to me too. you think I'd know what to do about it, right? Uh, Well, Um, I'm definitely
0: perimenopause. I'll tell you, I feel like I'm just sitting there. I'm like, all right, look at these nails. What's happening? Yeah, my hair is changing. Like my skin is changing. I'm like, right. Our bowel movements change. Oh yeah,
1: all the things we don't want to say out loud. Yeah, (laughs) our vaginal mucosa changes, and even the sensation changes. Right, our sensation Mm -hmm. during sexuality and what we what we like and don't like, which is another reason. That having a good sex therapist or sex educator or sex counselor in your corner to help you navigate how to communicate better during sexuality is great because you may say, I've been with this partner for 30, 30 years. They darn well better know what I like by now, right? Yeah. But guess what? What you like is going to change. Yeah. And so not having the verbiage to express that to a partner can cause a big wedge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, out of the blue, right? People come and go, I, We just stopped talking. We just stopped having sex. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and it's because we, we lost the ability to communicate about it because we assumed that they knew and we maybe assumed that we knew mm-hmm. about our own bodies. Right. Mm-hmm. And we don't. We have to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, menopause is a big change, but it also can be a wonderful time. Yeah. Um, first of all, it can be a time where we can have sex free of, of risk of unintended pregnancy if that's mm-hmm. something we don't want anymore.
0: Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so that could be very freeing and wonderful. And it's just there's just a lot of changes that we can come into in that time frame that we can start to understand our our bodies more. And we tend to get a little bit more bold when we're yeah. in our 40s and 50s as women. We start to just tell people how we think yeah. and what we feel. <laughs> yeah. I always, I mean, since I was 20, I've wanted to be that older woman who just doesn't give a flip. Like I just <laughs> walking around, you know, screw you, screw you, screw you. This is what this is what I'm doing. I'm wearing right. my bathrobe to mire to yeah. the grocery store and, <laughs> and I don't care. And my curlers are in and I'm going to cut you off in the road because this is the lane I want to be in. So sorry. Yeah. Like, I have wanted to be this person my whole life. <laughs> right. So this is what I'm looking forward to in menopause. That's, That's so my funny. excuse. <laughs> I'm the woman. Who so there's openly... a lot of wonderful things that can happen.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I'm the woman who openly dances in the grocery stores. <laughs> it's like pushing the cart. Down yes. The... Wiggling. shaking Good for it. you. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got I've to develop the kahunas for that yet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> my kids
0: really appreciate it.
1: <laughs> That's the only thing that drives me to do those things sometimes. It's like, oh, I got teenagers to embarrass. Yes, let's do this. <laughs> this will make them into better people. You guys don't understand, but mom's being real noble right now. I I'm know. helping you understand how to navigate really difficult things in the world, like an embarrassing mom. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so one of my favorite things to do.
0: What are some things then that um, women can ask their, you know, their physician around hormones as they're starting to go through menopause?
1: So one of the things I do tell people is we very seldom check hormone levels. Mm-hmm. So people will often come in and go, something's up. Can you check my hormone levels? And they're usually okay when I explain to them, listen, an estrogen level can be normal between depending on the lab you use can be between 40 and 400, right? Wow. So if I check a level. You're probably going to be within that, but mm-hmm. you might be at 50 where yesterday you were at 200. So it's not the level as much as it is the fluctuation. Interesting. And if you're coming in with certain certain symptoms that suggest fluctuation, hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, migraines, um, vaginal dryness that vaginal dryness more suggests a, a decrease, um, but the others suggest the fluctuations. The peaks and valleys, right? So if you're coming in with symptoms that that suggest that, then we do what we can to stabilize the fluctuations. But checking a level isn't going to tell me much. It's not going to change our treatment. It's going to cost you a whole boatload of money. It might give us a. What I, what I tend to see is then providers actually just look at the screen and forget there's a human on sitting off to the left there. And they go, well, you know, your estrogen level is right in the middle of normal. So, see ya. you are good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we tend to treat the numbers and not the patient. So, I very seldom check them unless there's something that doesn't seem to be adding up. Interesting. So, as a patient, if you go in, you can say, certainly something's going on. I don't know what it is. I'm assuming hormones seem to feel like they're fluctuating too much. Um, What can I do? And there's a lot of different things you can do. And people use all sorts of natural things, and they're wonderful. And then people use medications, and they're wonderful, that are non-hormonal. And then people use hormones that are also wonderful. And even some people who don't feel like they can be on hormones based on a previous history of maybe not responding well to birth control pills or something. The hormones that we use for hormone replacement or hormone supplementation with menopause, they're wildly different. That's like apples and oranges, mm-hmm. like apples and trees, apples and puppy dogs. Like they're totally, totally different. So we can, you know, it's reasonable to think you might respond well to hormones that we use around menopause, even if you didn't respond well to the hormones of birth control. Um, so not all hormones are the same. Some people, even if you have a family history of certain things, they might still have certain cancers. You might still be able to use hormones. Even people who are, Uh, we call previvors. So people who have shown to have a genetic mutation that might predispose them to certain types of cancers, like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, something like that. Sometimes it's even appropriate to use low-dose transdermal hormones in those people. So it's all worth a discussion of the risks and benefits with a hormone specialist to understand, you know, what is this worth to me? There is a, a small percent chance of a stroke, which is a you know, it's a big thing to risk but also I'm miserable and I can't function
0: hmm.
1: right so what is what is the payoff? And it, it shouldn't be up to me as a medical provider to decide that for you. you get to decide that, but what is up to me is to give you all the facts yeah and not to tell you no that makes me nervous. I don't think you should be on it but to say you've got this percentage risk of this, this percentage risk of this and you, you know you get to tell me, what percentage risk you have of not functioning in your day. And then, then we then we get out our teeter totter and figure out which you know which direction you want to go with that.
0: Wow. Yeah that's great. So I, I just feel like that's so important because I do think there is just um I don't think we recognize the impact that hormones play in our body. We always mm-hmm. say, I mean, we throw them around like to say, oh, it's just your hormones, right? Yeah, then, yeah, right. But then Blame we on the hormones. then we never do anything about <laughs> learning about no. their hormones and the fact that they actually play a large role in yeah. so much of how our body functions.
1: Yeah, they do. And testosterone in yeah. women, in cis women, testosterone is our, our major hormone sex steroid hormone, that we have more testosterone than we do estrogen throughout most of our childbearing years, but the powers that be, you know, FDA, I don't know, all the people that decide whether women can get certain types of uh, commercially available products made for them, right? Mm-hmm. Where, the, where the research goes, mm-hmm. they don't appear to know that testosterone is an important hormone for women. Mm-hmm. Testosterone is seen as the male hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And we need testosterone in our bodies. We need a testosterone at our vestibules, at the openings to our vagina. Or those start to get painful and dry and um, red and inflamed and kind of ticked off. Mm. And um, yeah, so testosterone is an important one too. I, I mean, I'm staying on my hormones till the day I die. Uh, and insurances. Oh, let me tell you something about insurances. I get so jaded about them, but they will send out letters to medical providers as well as to patients once they turn 65 and go, yeah, you should be off your hormone now. Why? And why? Because it's probably going to cost them more to keep you on hormones than it is going to be, frankly, to just let you die. Isn't that awful? <laughs> I shouldn't even say it that frankly, but
0: it makes me so angry. Well, where do because- they even have the like authority? <laughs>
1: Tell you what to do. I'm (laughs) telling you, they have a very self-inflicted authority that they do whatever they darn well please, and it's maddening. Interesting. Um, And it is where we are right now. I when I opened this practice, a lot of my mentors and supervisors, and they were saying, Nisha, you've just got to open a cash pay practice. This is how you can practice better medicine, which you can. You don't have to jump through the insurance hoops, right? If yourself, if you're in a cash pay practice. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't my goal. It wasn't my mission, um, and it's still not. But it is a pain in the neck to deal with these insurances. They can pay you, especially as a PA. So they, you know, they can choose to pay me less, and they do. Then they pay a physician, um, and then they can choose not to pay me, and they don't have to have anything. Like I can't take them to insurance court, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And say you have to pay me this. They can just say no. I think I'm going to pay you this this time, and they can just do it. Wow. So they they have this very self inflicted sense of. I don't know, self-advocacy for them. (laughs) If only we could have that sense of advocacy for ourselves, right? Yeah, seriously. They just get to pick and choose how they act and what they expect from people and what they give to people.
0: Maybe they should give life courses.
1: (laughs) They should. (laughs) They should take some. That's funny. (laughs) But yeah, so they'll tell people at at the age of 65 that they should come off their hormones. And Mm -hmm. I'm going, listen, if you, you know, our ovaries aren't coming back at yeah. 65, right? No. Mm-hmm. So if you take those hormones away, now lowest therapeutic dose I'm all for that, right? I don't want to take more Tylenol than I need in a day either. Right. But if if you're doing well on this hormone and it's giving you a sense of vitality, no way I'm not taking that away from you. I'm going to keep telling you what the risks and benefits are, but no, we're not we're just going to put that little note from the insurance company in our circular
0: file. Yeah, seriously. We're coming towards time. And so I wanted to ask you, as I do all of my guests, what story are you reframing in your life right now?
1: Mm, Only one? I know. (laughs) (laughs) The main one. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, I, you know, I would say me. Uh, Me is the story I'm reframing, I think, right now. About a year and a half ago, I was. Somewhat forced into a decision. I was forced into a decision. I had a decision, but it wasn't. Um, I didn't like either choice. Mm. And this was about my career. And I took the path that led me to where I am today, and I'm grateful for that. And I've learned so much along the way. But I've I've learned a lot more even about myself along the way than I have even about business. I oh my gosh, my I, I've never run a practice before. Um, this was all brand new. My learning curve was a straight vertical up. But I've learned that all of my life, like the f- 40 plus years um, of that little voice that I kept hearing, that I was just like, oh, maybe I'll make that change later. Maybe I'll listen to that later. Mm-hmm. That it can be loud and it can be effective and, and that I can let it out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the reframe is me.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, that's cool. That's good, right? It just I think so. Be hard. It can be hard. <laughs> yeah, I think so. You know, <laughs> along this, this, past, this, this past year and a half, my, the staff that's with me that we've been together for a long time, they're amazing people. And they've just kept saying to me this whole time, Nish, this is what was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying you guys are off your rockers. There's Mm. no way this was supposed to happen. This should not happen to anyone. And, you know, what we went through as a, as a collective group was relatively traumatic and um, yeah. And, uh, and now I am getting to the point where I realize, you know what? I think that was supposed to happen because we can now practice in ways that we really do want to practice and we can offer trainings and create a culture Not just me in a room with a patient, but our whole practice can have this culture now that Mm -hmm. patients from the moment they call feel heard and accepted and invited and comfortable.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And um, that's not something we would have been able to create before. Mm -hmm. So I think that I'm realizing that this has been in me for a long time and that I've kept it stifled to fit into a mold of what Society accepts as a woman, as a um, Asian American woman, as a woman, as a PA, and not a physician, right? All these things that I kind of used over the years to keep my voice quiet and say, "Oh, nobody wants to hear from me."
0: Yeah. Oh.
1: And so I'm reframing that voice inside me and go, "You know, if they don't want to keep hearing from me, they can keep scrolling.
0: Okay? <laughs> they can move
1: on. <laughs> there you go. That's a great I'm getting route. to be the lady in the in the grocery store, there right? Like go. whatever. I'm going to do this." <laughs> And, um, and maybe, maybe someone can benefit from it. Yeah. And I think before I never would have thought anyone could benefit from anything I had to say, man, but giving them the opportunity might be empowering for,
0: for them and for me. Well, I am certain that you have, you know, managed to help reframe many people's stories (laughs) and just hearing just again, the way and knowing you and knowing how you're running your practice. It's, it's just what, It's really what is long overdue, you know, it's just what people need. And I think it's so, I just, I'm, I don't know that story behind what happened, but I just feel so grateful for the way that you've recognized where people need to be seen and especially in sexuality and especially in our most private areas and Mm -hmm. to recognize that we, you know, hold value. And I think too often not, we've been told that we're not valuable mm-hmm. and that um, our sense of understanding who we are sexually is something of value and it's not something that we should keep quiet, you know, Mm-mm. and so you're providing that space and that's what's really needed. I hope so. Yeah. Thank you. And you, by the way, <laughs> are
1: providing a space for a. Uh, a very special space that even most of us who come through sexuality training programs don't don't have the background and the knowledge that you have. And so I just, I really appreciate what you're doing for your clients and c- customers. I'm <laughs> sorry, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> your people. The people in your the circle. I hang out yes. with. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no. yes. You oh, just have you. such an incredible, special, unique quality about what you do. And I just, I so appreciate it. I, I learn so. from you every day, so I love that.
0: We're out there together. Woo-hoo. Yes, <laughs> yes, go team. Yes. <laughs> so tell tell us where people can find you and learn from you. For those who you are in Michigan, so those in Michigan can find you. But those maybe outside of Michigan who even just want to learn from you, how can they find oh. you?
1: Oh, I'm so bad at this. Okay. So I do have some social media (laughs) and I have to remember what they are. So the name of my practice is called Women's Health Collective and we are in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So our website is whcollective.com. We do have a Facebook page and I believe it's the same WH Collective and Instagram. It might be Nisha McKenzie PA (laughs) actually. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, just Google some stuff. It'll probably yes, Google, come up, right?
0: right. <laughs> so I recently
1: started a TikTok, which is so out of my comfort zone. But oh, but it's good. Um, I've been watching them. I'm like, have you Oh, yeah. Oh, my word. So um, that's Nisha McKenzie, PA. Um, so, yeah, we're out there a little bit. <laughs> Stepping outside our comfort zones again. <laughs> Reframing my comfort zone <laughs> one day at a time. <laughs> outside of that patient exam room and get out there in the world.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, I hope people go and look you up and find you. uh, Oh, thank you, Kara. Yes. Appreciate it. (laughs)